Welcome to the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Podcast Series. I'm Elwiz Nikki, your host today. Our guest, Karin Singh, is the co-founder and COO of Ginger, which provides on-demand mental health support day or night. Karin also attended UC Berkeley for undergrad and is a proud bear. So welcome to our podcast today. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Elle. Yeah, absolutely. To begin, could you share with our audience a bit more about yourself and about Ginger? Sure. Well, nice to meet you and meet all of your fellow listeners. I've been on this adventure now at Ginger for a little over a decade. I started a company in 2010 when I was actually a graduate student at the time at MIT and Harvard at the business school and medical school. And we have evolved the Ginger mission and and vision over the years and and largely, as you described, are offering on-demand access to mental health care. So think of it like a virtual clinic with access to a team of coaches, therapists, psychiatrists, and a set of content that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, typically in under a few minutes that is accessible across the country in all 50 states and now live in 50 countries internationally. Excellent. So necessary. I mean, I myself have um, had challenges with my mental health. And I'm so excited by the new opportunities and new companies because it is still a new business, a lot of unmet needs. Could you share a bit more about your career journey and like what really got you to where you are today and when you decided to start Ginger? It's kind of incredible just how much energy and attention there is in mental health and certainly, you know, digital or virtual mental health offerings. That was not the case over a decade ago, more broadly in mental health care and certainly not as as it relates to technology applied to, to healthcare. I was a fellow Cal Bear. I went to undergraduate at UC Berkeley in economics and at Haas and didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Stumbled into consulting, thought it was a great way to continue to go to school in some ways and keep learning and figure out what problems I wanted to tackle. I just knew I needed, I wanted to have global social impact and I didn't really know what that meant or how that might manifest. And so worked for a number of years in consulting, particularly with large biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies. And like many people in mental health, ultimately dove into this space through a a personal connection, have a loved one who had tried to take their own life, was on the other end of a phone call, now November of 2008. So it's been about 13 years. And it shook me to my core. I was felt like I was a good read on people, a good judge on character. And I had no idea when this happened. And so I started to dig into the space and I realized that just culturally, socially, emotionally, this was the no-go zone for so many people. You know, no one talks about mental health care and certainly not in a lot of communities of color. My family is originally from India. I was born in Malaysia and moved to the US when I was about two. But I learned as I started to dig into this space that many communities don't talk about mental health care, that the stigma around mental health is pretty pronounced. And that's certainly lowered in the last 18 months, I'd say, as through COVID-19, as we've all had work and life and the rest all mixed up together and, and are starting to get a maybe richer and deeper view into how people are feeling outside of the workplace. But historically, that those have largely been very separated. And I realized I wanted to have an impact on that. I didn't know exactly how and how and, and in what ways, but I eventually went back to graduate school and was in a dual degree program called the Health Science and Technology Program 
between the medical school at Harvard and the business school at MIT, really interested in understanding this intersection of data and mental health care. And ultimately founded Ginger and uh, have been on this adventure ever since in pursuit of, of really delivering on that promise. Wow, thank you just so much for being so vulnerable and sharing such a personal story. I think it's really helpful for our listeners to understand, be aware that difficult things happen in life, really difficult, really painful things. And it's how we respond and and learn and grow and support our community that matters. And I think you brought up such a great point that really gets me into my next question around just culturally responsive care and like the differences for people in different countries um, of different backgrounds and the stigma of mental health for so many people, especially people of color. So I'd, I'd love to just hear more about how Ginger thinks about culturally responsive care. I know that you all had a, a DEI strategy report as well, and was wondering if you could share anything around that, whether it comes from your personal experience and also just the research that your team has done around diversity. There is um, so much friction in accessing mental health care, regardless of your, you know, racial or ethnic background. And then when you layer that on top of it and really trying to find acts care that that understands your specific community or context, it's it's even harder. So, you know, I think the short answer to your question is it's foundational to how we think about delivering incredible mental health care. It ultimately starts with understanding who you serve and then building a, a resource and, a, and a, attracting a set of providers that come from those communities that understand those populations, That whether that's speaking in uh, multiple languages. Uh, we re- actually recently rolled out our Ginger for Spanish language support and you know whether that's supporting new kinds of populations. A couple months ago, we launched with Medicaid group, AmeriHealth in Washington, D.C., or whether that's supporting younger populations like adolescents and and our Ginger for Teens program. In each of these different communities, we realized we really need to both understand the specific set of needs that they face and then quality control in effect to understand, are we seeing the same outcomes or the same results in each of these populations? Or are there any differences that would help inform how we tweak the product? Reality is that we've seen this across the United States and we've seen this in now, you know, 50 countries and growing internationally, that while we might use different language to describe mental health and mental health challenges, the core issues that are oftentimes at, at the center of a lot of those challenges are pretty universal, right? Workplace stress, relationship issues, sleep, new parents, taking care of loved ones who are especially during COVID, who might be battling uh, chronic diseases or other health challenges. These are, these are universal life challenges that are a source of tension and a source of stress and can be a source of anxiety. And so I think the, the, the commonality across each of these groups means that we actually can build products that can serve each of those populations. And yet we also need to make sure that they're personalized and they're, they're contextualized. And so, you know, it's a core part of, of how we've built out our, our program. It's something that we encourage all of our employer and health plan customers and other partners to really think hard about is ultimately creating a, a set of resources that can speak to each of those populations and can address that stigma first and foremost. Because again, so much of the challenge right now is actually taking that first step that most people finding the courage to actually seek out access to care, whether it's through your primary care provider, through a church group, through a friend, there is an incredible amount of activation energy that's required to get over. But once you can, and if you can, virtual mental health solutions like what Ginger offers and a number of others can be a really incredible and powerful resource to help you feel better. 
you touched on some really important topics. I want to touch a little bit more on gender for Spanish as well as other languages. Something that is an interest area of mine, and I think some other students at Haas as well, is around like the health literacy and, and caregivers who are supporting their family members who may not, in the U.S. context, for example, do not speak English and therefore can have challenges navigating health systems. And you also mentioned around that activation energy, which I imagine is even harder if you already are having barriers in accessing care and maybe affordability around care. Are there ways in which Ginger and or you in your life have worked to address those awareness challenges and affordability challenges, especially around like health literacy for mental health? Yeah, great, great question. And, you know, you're getting into a lot of, I think, the systemic challenges that plague not only mental health care in this country, but healthcare in this country. I think we've all seen how that plays out during COVID-19, where the, the impact is not universally experienced, right? As it relates to, to mental health and, and ginger, I think there are a few things that we've learned over the years. I, I would First, I'll, I'll preface all this by saying we certainly don't have all the answers here, but we've learned a few things in working with some specific populations. You know, I'll give you an example. We've been working with SEIU 775, the large labor union up in Washington state that has a collection of home healthcare workers, caregivers who are supporting exactly like you described, you know, a loved one paid for by the state to really support their daily needs. And it can be incredibly taxing and uh, stressful for those care providers. And because of the unique schedules that they work in, you know, a traditional, let's say therapist, whom you might have to drive across town at a time that might not be convenient for you to have sit down for an appointment and then battle traffic to, to at home is just too much friction to get through. And then on, add on top of that, the fact that many of those providers aren't accepting health insurance because historically the reimbursement rates for most mental health providers have been terribly low has meant that, again, for these communities, it becomes even harder and harder to access that care. So these access challenges become more pronounced. So we thought long and hard about how can you start to create access to these resources in a way that can fit the lives of, of those individuals. And so that came in the form of 24-7 access to behavioral health coaching that you can access day or night within typically under a minute or two response time that can be done via text. So you can actually be, you know, let's say, sitting alongside that loved one that you're taking care of and still be actually accessing care, which is a pretty fundamentally different way of, of accessing the mental health system. And then on top of that, that care is largely fully covered, which is to say that you can engage when and where you want it. And we've stripped away a lot of the complexity around health insurance coverage. And that is a really critical part of the equation, which is to say that we integrate as a, as a virtual clinic, if you will, with a variety of different health plans and, and health systems to make sure that the existing coverage that a member might have, they can actually leverage. Because what often happens is, you know, a member might actually have health insurance coverage and have mental health coverage as part of that through the, the ACA and the Mental Health Parity Act, but they can't actually find a provider. And so, in effect, it's, you know, like ghost network. And so we've, we've thought a lot about how do you actually remove that friction and make it easier for those individuals to access care. Wow. Just wow. I'm so excited to hear about all of this. I actually have a background in reimbursement and billing and coding. So from the career perspective. <laughs> I should talk to you more. Please, please tell us how we can, we can fix this. Because when I think about one of the fundamental or systemic challenges in the space, and this is you know, bigger than ginger, it's really payment reform. Right. It's Absolutely. like figuring out ways to communicate, to reimburse for these populations, especially, but just more broadly for most everyone who should and deserves access to great mental health care. 
you were speaking a bit about like for providers, right? And like making sure you have providers that are covered that are people of color. I'd love if you can speak a little bit more about, like you mentioned stripping away complexity around health insurance coverage. I'd love to understand around health insurance covering mental health support on the text-based platforms, because I know that's really new and really innovative. And traditionally health insurance and potentially didn't want to cover it or couldn't cover it for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of the opportunity here, right? Is to say, look, the supply and demand imbalance in mental health care is so pronounced and it's led to most people waiting weeks, if not months, trying to see a provider. The IE and the demand side, that's only doubled, if not you know, more so during COVID-19. And we're going to continue to see the ramifications of that in the years to come. On the supply side of the house, like you just described, it's a pipeline issue. There aren't enough providers who are entering the field and especially not providers of, of color. And so you have fewer providers, an incredible amount of demand, the curves don't cross. We've got to figure out a better way to solve this. And it isn't just about taking therapy appointments and putting them online. It is about thinking about unique ways to deliver access to care that we didn't ever appreciated were care, right? But actually turn out to be incredibly valuable and preventative in ensuring people have the support they need when and where they need it. And so behavioral health coaching, for instance, is one of those systemic innovations we feel like is an an incredibly important part of solving this supply and demand imbalance. We've seen that play out in other parts of medicine where you've introduced a nurse practitioner or physician assistant or other care care extenders to help give leverage to a network that was otherwise constrained. And you have a chance to do that with behavioral health coaching. And we've been on that adventure now for for a number of years and proud to say that last year, earlier this year now, we actually had our network covered by a number of different health insurance companies, most notably Cigna, to offer behavioral health coaching as a covered benefit. And so members with Cigna Health Insurance can get access to covered sessions and depending on their their payment plan, can pay a nominal copay and get access to a month or a few months worth of behavioral health text-based coaching. And that we think is fundamentally important to solving this problem. The second piece to this equation is actually starting to get creative with coverage for clinical sessions as well. So some of the more traditional clinical care, i.e. access to a video visit with a therapist or psychiatrist. And so those sessions with Ginger are actually covered by a number of health plans from United to a number of Blues plans to Cigna to certain Aetna plans, and et cetera, Kaiser Permanente. And we think that's also a big part of the equation is, is finding that talent, making sure it's available and covered through these health insurance plans. It's credentialed, it's in network, it's reimbursable, and then making that available to members so they don't have to navigate that incredible amount of complexity. So long answer to a short question, but we think that there's an incredible amount of opportunity to continue to innovate around affordability in mental health care. And that that actually is such a critical part of democratizing care because we can't keep increasing the cost. We actually have to find ways to pull costs out of the system to unlock access for more people. That's simply beautiful. I mean, it's it's really wonderful hearing a provider being so affordability forward because obviously providers still have to cover their costs, right? Pay their employees, their overhead, and and take home some money at the end of the day. And so I think there can be a lot of assumptions about providers, especially bigger providers, big hospitals and whatnot, about whether or not all of our health systems care about affordability and accessibility. And so for me, it's it's really, really refreshing because I talk to tons of people in the space and like affordability and accessibility isn't always at the forefront, you know? And I think a lot of folks 
and we talked about this, people of all different backgrounds have mental health challenges. And the accessibility and affordability piece does not extend across all those backgrounds. The problem in, in healthcare overall is the accessibility and affordability pieces. And it's just even more pronounced like you described in, in mental health care. And I, I think part of the challenge too is we've been programmed to think that, well, either therapy isn't for me because it's not it's not something that I do or my tribe might do and or it's the only solution, right? And neither is true, right? We, there is, there's an incredible amount of different interventions and support techniques and resources that people can access that are, can be highly accessible, can be very effective, but just as importantly, can be affordable. I'm excited to be able to dig in more with you on that. I, I, I think we're just on the, on the forefront of what this is going to look like. Absolutely. I think there's pros and cons to focus on mental health being separate. But then that huge con of the fact that coverage and accessibility is not the same as many physical health conditions, exacerbated by that stigma. And so it's so important to think about how to continue pushing the envelope to some of the big players in the health system for making it accessible. So this is, as you said, we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg. I'd love to actually zoom out if you don't mind to think about people across the globe. I think U.S. context is so, so nuanced and so complex. But if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to talk a bit more about the global context. So my question there is mental health and wellness is talked about and practiced differently across the globe. And so I'm really curious how companies in this space adapt their content and services to people in different countries. And I, I recently heard that Ginger is merging with Headspace and so to become Headspace Health. And therefore, from that digital content perspective, there's so much opportunity for expansion across the globe. And so I'd love if you can speak to that more in the context of, of this recent merger, as well as how that might open up doors for care outside of the US. There's a pre-COVID version of this answer, and then there's the you know COVID version of the answer, right? Which is to say, you know, close to a billion people worldwide have a mental health challenge and 75% of them receive no treatment. It's pretty incredible, right? And those numbers are unfortunately going in the wrong direction. And so when we thought a lot about how we solve this massive imbalance of supply and demand, the fact that we don't have enough care providers to meet this, this surging need, we realized that we needed to, to act. We needed to do something. That our, our vision is a world where mental health is never an obstacle. And right now it's an obstacle for a whole lot of people. And we thought back to our origin story and really the idea that the only way we were going to stem the tide was providing access to preventative mental health care, that we had to catch things early, that we had to be able to move upstream before folks fell into the river in the first place. And when we thought about this ecosystem that's been now blossoming in, in this space, we, when we first set up our, our care provider, you know, our virtual clinic, if you will, we, we thought of the three C's of mental health, coaching, clinical, and content. In effect, built two out of the three. We built a really robust coaching and, and clinical offering and have a set of content within our mobile application, but realize that actually to do this at scale, to do preventative mental health care at scale, we needed really a partner who had perfected the creation of and delivery of that content. And so that ultimately led us to conversations with the Headspace team. And they've been pioneers in this space for actually as long as we have. And they've really been a leader in meditation and mindfulness, not only within the United States, but in you know, 190 countries internationally. And so they'd also seen from the other end of the spectrum, 
members who were accessing their services, but who were in need of even more support and more tailored support. And so we think that the combination of, of the two together, Ginger and Headspace, merging to form Headspace Health really creates exactly what we were talking about earlier. This incredibly, really what we say is the world's most accessible and comprehensive digital mental health platform, which is really covers the spectrum from prevention and promotion all the way to clinical care and everything in between and allows us to start to tailor that care for different populations, whether that's within the United States or as we're talking about here in many countries internationally. And so we believe we have a chance to actually build something really special that's focused on that, the needs of each of these different populations, but still built on that same core foundation and felt like more than anything, the time was now that in order for us to stem this, we really had to act and, and act quickly. So it's been a fun uh, adventure here and, and we're just on the, the early stages of, the, of this new chapter, but have a chance to, to actually make an incredible amount of impact now worldwide. Awesome. I think many of us are excited in the space, people in the mental health space, people who've used Headspace, who've used Ginger, like we're all really excited to see where this goes. And they're, I think, just really, I mean, people like me who are actually, you know, work in mental health are just like, grateful that two large players in the space thought of coming together, right, to, to, to expand and really make access more possible. This brings me to market landscape and thinking about how the market is changing and what the challenges are for scaling. And so I'd, I'd love to know what were some of the biggest challenges in scaling gender originally and, and how have you navigated those challenges to get you to where you are today? Yeah, well, I think first off, um, it's incredible to see just how much innovation is starting to happen in the space. So, you know, at the end of the day, I always feel like we're on a mission and we're building a movement and that movement is starting to accelerate and that there are now a number of folks who are jumping in from different angles trying to tackle this and that for us to be really true to our vision, again, a world where mental health is never an obstacle, we were never going to be able to do this alone. We needed to inspire many other people to really tackle this from different vantage points and include combined forces with folks who actually have a shared mission, vision, value, and a, a set of cultural alignment. I think that's, that's really at our, our core. We've learned over the years just how complex mental health can be and that, like we've been talking about, the opportunity in so many ways is actually to remove friction from the process and unlock access and, and affordability. You know, our, our early days were really targeted in selling a technology platform to provider groups and ultimately realizing that we actually had to become a provider to solve these fundamental challenges, that just optimizing a broken system wasn't going to actually rewire that system, that unless we changed the whole care paradigm, changed the way that care was accessed and the, that it was made affordable, that we weren't actually going to be able to make a dent in this space. So that's really, I think, guided how we've thought about the solution and how we've thought about scaling and also how we, we think about you know the rest of the market, which is to say that we need to be able to interface with and integrate with other people. Because again, we're not going to be able to do all the things, but we need to know what we're really good at delivering on and also understand where the limitations of what we've built so we can actually make sure that ultimately in a member first mentality that members get what they need, the care they need. And whether that's because, for instance, someone might be 
too acute and require in-person hospitalization or other in-person treatment that we can actually get them to that level of care or maybe through the process of delivering mental health, we discover additional chronic needs or other issues that we can get them tied into the the healthcare ecosystem. I think that's a really critical part of our strategy. And you alluded to this already, but we're seeing such a huge growth in the digital mental health space. And I mean, exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Where do you see the space going innovation-wise in the next three to five years? We've had a boom of like so much this last year or two. What new things, what's what's just really out there that you think might happen? No, a whole lot. I mean, we're just getting started. I think we have an opportunity to really fundamentally rewire this whole system. And what we're seeing right now is some innovation largely on the fringes, and that's starting to actually jump into the belly of the market, if you will. We're still quite early. I think the early innings of particularly forward-thinking employers who are purchasing some sort of virtual or, or, or digital mental health offering, starting to actually offer this as a benefit to their teams. We're seeing, the, like we talked about earlier, health insurance plans like the Kaisers or Cigna's or others of the world starting to actually really invest in alternative and effective mental health strategies. I think what we're going to start to see is an increased focus on not just accessibility and affordability, but efficacy and really making sure that that which we roll out works, right? And an increasing focus on science and evidence-based research to demonstrate that the impact of these sorts of interventions. I think we're going to start to see more and more of this long tail of interventions, if you will, these things that we've traditionally never really considered mental health treatments start to get adopted in small ways where we are able to leverage a lot of the data that we're collecting as a field to figure out what works for whom, when, and how. I think so much of today, mental health treatment today is largely a guessing game. Don't really know what works. And we use pretty blunt instruments like the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7, two standard assessments for treatment of depression and anxiety to really to determine the whole host of treatment. Those are relatively imprecise tools. And so I think we're going to start to see just an incredible amount of focus on better data that can help us develop more personalized treatment interventions for specific groups or cohorts of people that are ultimately going to help them get better faster. So I'm excited for what's ahead. I think that we could talk about this question for hours at a time. Uh, and I think we're just getting started, but I, I'm excited about the level of interest and focus now in the space that I think now that's going to translate into really making sure that we can demonstrate the efficacy of those these sorts of approaches. Absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned employer benefits. It's easier to think about this from the perspective of a large company like Facebook or Google, like one of these big tech companies who's doing really innovative things. But my question for you is what kind of support is out there for smaller companies, more diverse companies, companies with fewer resources and maybe a blue collar population who want to improve their mental wellness offerings, but may not be able to afford a separate wellness benefit provider? What is out there for them? What what kinds of things are supportive and especially catered to maybe a diverse or a less well-resourced company? You know, I can, I can tackle this from a couple angles. From the gender perspective specifically, we service large employers like the Delta Airlines of the world or PricewaterhouseCoopers all the way to small to medium-sized businesses, SMB clients like you're describing, I think, here. So we do see actually a number of SMBs purchase uh, a solution like Ginger. And because we're in network now with a variety of health plans, most of those small to medium-sized businesses are offering health insurance to their employees. And thus, those, those employees actually have access to tools like a Ginger through their health plan. 
So I'd say I'd encourage them to see what they might already have access to because they might not, they may, may not realize that they already have access to a set of innovative solutions that actually could be quite effective. And if, if you're not sure, you know, asking your health plan, asking your benefits consultant or other, other resource that could, to help guide you through that process, because there are actually now a number of, of these sorts of programs that may be covered and may have access. I think more broadly, we're going to start to see, especially as we continue to focus on affordability, that these solutions do become economical for that segment of the market as well, right? That for the price of, in effect, covering lunch, you can actually get access to a month or a few months worth of care, right? That's a pretty different economic equation, even for SMBs or other smaller entities who might think that this is just cost prohibitive. And so um, I think that's something that we, I'd, I'd encourage you know, anyone who's maybe thinking about that space to really challenge this assumption that it has to be expensive to be good. And then I think as this space continues to evolve and really as technology and data can play a better and better role, we're going to continue to pull costs out of the system. So instead of costs and prices going up, they should come down. We should be able to, as we scale, see economies of scale and see the ability to actually deliver care at a fraction of the cost than historically it has been. That's so helpful and something that I don't think about as much, right? I think growing up in my generation and you know other generations who are older than me, mental health care was always really expensive. That's for white people. That's for rich people. That's for someone I'm, I'm not. That's not for me because I can't afford it. It doesn't look like me. And so you mentioned that hiring providers who are of diverse backgrounds is really important. And so I'm curious, what kind of training or specific knowledge do your providers or providers that some of your competitors have or could get to make sure that when they're servicing either the small businesses or people from diverse backgrounds, that they're able to provide that care that is culturally competent? We, we think about Culturally competent care in, so, in a number of dimensions from like we're describing, just being able to recruit a diverse network and that diversity can play out in many levels. We've obviously been largely talking about racial or ethnic diversity, but it can play out in, in, in so many other aspects. Then continue to train those provider group with a set of resources and bringing in external facilitators or trainers or leaders who understand best practice. And then like we've talked about briefly, but just maybe to unpack a bit further, it's QAing the efficacy of those groups is really understanding, are we seeing the same response rates? Are we seeing the same symptom improvement or other member satisfaction rates that we see in other populations? And really carving out or pulling, teasing that data out to understand, do we actually have the same effect as we see in other other larger groups? And so we think that's actually a really big part of this, this process. And we also think that unlike maybe the traditional healthcare system, we're looking to inject this from the start. And that we can learn from the things that didn't work well and all of the, the stigmas that those created, like you described, right? And we can start to think about, okay, how do we, all the way from the original messaging around how we message what this is, how can we really be culturally sensitive? How can we think about the ways in which even that health promotion and health literacy and those communication campaigns can take that into account and perhaps frame it in a way that actually would resonate with that group or that cohort. And I think that's a big part of this equation because so much of this is actually getting people through the front door. Once they're in the door, then there's a lot of great work that happens to ensure that their specific needs are met. But getting them in the door and getting past all of that talk track that might be getting in the way, I think is such a critical part of the equation and something that I think we 
have heavily invested in are going to continue to invest in to make sure that we can support because certainly as we we think about global populations that's going to be even more pronounced and even more critical to get right you made me think about how companies like yours and similar organizations may partner with nonprofits or local community groups you mentioned churches beginning our conversation partnering with them to work on breaking down that stigma. Are you seeing any examples of companies like Ginger partnering with local community advocacy groups to help break down the stigma of mental health in their local communities? Yeah, we, we are. And we're certainly something we're, we're really passionate about and have been supporting a variety of different groups over the years. Because like I said earlier, at the end of the day, we're part of a broader movement that's been building, that's growing from multiple channels and multiple angles. And, and we need to be able to interface with those groups in different ways. The, the work that we're doing, for instance, with the Medicaid population in Washington, D.C., AmeriHealth, you know, has a specific set of communication channels and different advocacy groups that we or they have been partnering with over the years to, to reach these populations and actually communicate to them the benefit that they now have access to on-demand mental health care. And so I do think it's a really critical part of scaling care. I think we're also in the early stages of being able to do that in a, in a meaningful and, and scaled way. And I think in addition, it's also thinking about ways to just interface with government and overall policy organizations that can actually help in influencing these exact relationships. It's all about those public-private partnerships, right? Like we can't do this without changing policy. And the policy landscape is so hard and so many organizations shy away from that side when really if you just dug in a little bit more it would make such a difference. And when you think about your partnerships and vendors, whether that's how I mentioned from that local community advocacy standpoint or vendors to support Ginger's larger operational goals, have you considered you know, selecting partners or vendors that are a cultural and mission fit with Ginger, especially around the DEI lens? Like, How, how do you think about that in hiring diverse suppliers to work on you know, things that you have to outsource or if you have those kind of external partnerships? Yeah, I, I think it actually starts from within, first and foremost, which is not only hiring a diverse set of providers, but just a diverse team at all levels of the organization, including leadership and including our board of directors. And so I think that's been a, a really big focus of ours and can, will continue to be a focus of ours to make sure that at every level of the organization, we have a commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, because ultimately, I think it's actually the the, the belonging that, that really encompasses the rest. And then I think it does represent then how we think about different partners and groups that we work with. I think the Headspace merger probably being the, the best and most recent example, which is to say that we we thought long and hard to make sure that any group that we considered joining forces with was aligned and had that same core commitment to DEIB overall and should factor into who we choose to partner with and how we grow because that we know we're not doing it just because, but we're doing it because it'll actually create a better end product. It'll create a better experience for members, which will ultimately give us the ability to have larger scale. Yeah. And creating that end goal for your customers is often at the forefront. And it, it makes me wonder as well, how often are organizations like Ginger thinking about the experience for their providers? Providers are supporting the clients and also your internal employees. And that's a lot of mental health taxing work <laughs> for your internal team, as well as your client-facing providers. Where are the opportunities to support providers? How are you supporting providers as well as your employees? And are there gaps in providing the support that you're actively working on improving? So critical to getting this right. You asked earlier, how, how are we scaling and what are the challenges? This is such a 
an important pillar, which is to say that we need to take care of our team so they can take care of our members. We need to take care of our providers so they can take care of those that they serve. And so it's engineered into how we build out the Ginger experience. It's a fundamental part of our product team and offering, which is to continue to focus on tooling and infrastructure and workflow and processes that make their lives easier, that ultimately remove the friction, that reduce the amount of time that they have to spend. I'll give you a case example being at the end of of a session with a coach, coaches summarize their notes and they add that you know, into, into their coaching hub, our record, if you will. And through now a number of years of, of innovation and commitment to this process, we've actually developed a system that can automatically summarize notes for a coach, whereby at the end of a conversation, as, as uh, I'm sure you can appreciate too, as, as a former coach, can summarize the conversation that happened, the salient points, make sure that anybody who might be picking up that specific case or anybody else on that, that member's team can actually understand a little bit more context around what what just transpired and what are the key components of that. The coach can review that, edit it as they, as they need to, but editing is far easier than drafting the whole thing writ large. And ultimately that saves them time, makes them feel like they can continue to, to focus on the things that they love, which is ultimately delivering care rather than note-taking and creates a better experience overall. So we think this is foundational to getting this right. And that's just, you know, one example of, of many that we have to ensure that we're taking care of our providers so they can continue to, to support our members effectively. I love that. As you said, as a former coach, I think summarizing the session and making sure you can hand off that member to someone else if they have to interface with another provider is is so key and so hard and takes so much time. And thinking back to like the health insurance conversation we had, providers are only billed for a certain amount of time. And therefore, I see this all the time when I go to the doctor, like doctors rush through their important appointments because they're only billed for a certain amount of time. And so if a lot of that time has to be spent taking notes, that is really, really taxing for both the provider as well as the patient experience. So that's truly incredible and so necessary. And I hear a lot as well when I'm pitching innovative ideas to providers, like, well, the EMR, the EMR burden, the electronic medical record burden, like we can't add that step in. That's too much. We don't have time to do that. We already have to do all this stuff. So I'm really glad that Ginger is thinking about that already. With our last remaining moments, I'd love to get a little bit more personal and have our listeners hear a little bit more about you. And so I want to start with a question that's about Ginger and you. I learned that the name Ginger comes from a special and personal place. Would you mind sharing a bit more about the name and your family background in relation? Yes, certainly. So the story is about my mom, as most stories end up being. And like we talked about earlier, prevention is at the core of of our mission and our vision. And story goes, my mom used to feed me ginger and honey whenever I got sick. She, in many ways, knew me better than I knew myself. And she knew when I was coming down with something before I even realized it. And so we thought long and hard about what we wanted to be when we grew up and what we wanted the company to ultimately become. And and it really had to do with understanding someone so you can deliver more proactive and more preventative care. And that's the name Ginger. And it's going to be evolving certainly as we we merge now with with Headspace and as we continue to, to scale. But uh, I think it's that that core concept of prevention and proactive or preventative mental health is is really at the core of of our our joint team's goals. Wow, that's so layered. It's not just the ginger tea helping you when you're sick. It's also the idea that your mom was preempting and having a preventative solution for you. That is simply beautiful. I bet your mom is so excited. So being a founder is no easy task. You just mentioned 
getting sick, for example. But there are other things with being a founder entrepreneur that are even harder, especially in the initial stages or even through scaling or even through a merger. So what personal advice do you have to listeners who are interested in entrepreneurship, especially in the healthcare space? wrote a few essays about this because it was a t- topic that I'm, I'm really passionate about. I, I called it a three-part series on pivots. And the, the first part was largely around pivots as a, our business model pivot from selling into providers to becoming one. This second was largely around our team pivot, evolving the t- leadership team as we continue to scale. And the, and the third and, and maybe most relevant here is my me pivot, as I called it, which was really evolving my mindset as an entrepreneur. I think so much of this game is about resilience. It's about the bounce back muscle. The reality is every day, every week, every month, every year, you're going to hear something that rocks your world, that just changes changes everything, whether it's new competition or an employee leaving or losing a big contract or gaining an incredible contract that you're worried about being able to deliver on. There's, there's just all of this. It's constant change. And the, the one constant is change. And so I think something that I underappreciated when you first start and, and something I've definitely invested in over the years is really figuring out ways to build that resilience. And I have a variety of different strategies and techniques from a monthly group of, of entrepreneurs I get together with for a pretty deep dive session on work and personal and family life to a set of a personal board of directors, if you will, a group of folks and mentors that I lean on when I have questions and, and concerns you know, to ultimately taking care of my own physical health as a way to actually manage my, my mental health. I think mean, these are all strategies that help as, as you scale and are so critical to ultimately maintaining the right mindset while you're scaling. And I think something that I, I think is certainly underappreciated and underrepresented in most MBA programs and, and most graduate programs, which is to say that such a big part of it, your success actually is, is your mindset and how you approach these challenges and being able to take care of your mental health through that journey. That's awesome. I'm seeing more and more around wellness in the MBA circuit. Um, It seems like more schools are creating new wellness clubs or wellness even with this case competition, right? Having a mental health focused case competition, although that is still a competition, it is bringing mental health to the forefront. And so I've learned personally, I think the best thing that came out of me getting an MBA was learning how to take a step back, learning how to take breaks, being able to think about now when people ask me, well, you know, what do you want to do post MBA? I, I say, you know what, I have a lot of career ideas, but ultimately at the forefront is lifestyle. What will enable me to be there for my friends and my family and myself, most importantly. So I'm really glad that you are able to make sure that you have those mentors in those community circles. You just brought up a, a last point, which you know, I think so much of this is actually having the courage to articulate to yourself what those values or principles are for you. And I think sometimes you get swept up by the, you know, whether it's the MBA thing or otherwise to do something that actually doesn't make you happy when you know what that is. If you can be more explicit with yourself about that and then make decisions in life and just more broadly in your career or otherwise, you're going to be more effective and satisfied. And so I think that's a big part of the equation is is really being honest with yourself around what are you optimizing for? Like what's your criteria for any of your adventures, any of these key life decisions? And can you put that against this rubric and say, hey, am I I living those? I think that's something that I, I, over the years, have continued to kind of come back to and has generally guided me right is really being being true with yourself first and foremost. Yeah, I learned about the octopus of values. There's this article that you might want to check out. I can send you a link. And for anybody else listening, it's wait, but why, how to find your career. 
And essentially, if you just Google that, it'll have this really long article. But if you look at the photos, there's this octopus in the middle of the photos that has all these tentacles. It's like your personal financial goals. If you want to be famous, if you want to, it's all these different things. You're like more realistic self. They're pulling in a million different directions. And you have to balance all those very, very complicated needs as a human being. And so it's like, what are those three values that really speak to you? And like, I worked in consulting for several years because of certain values at the time. And those values have now changed for me. And like, it's okay for those things to change, which is which is so beautiful. And thinking about every few years, what is your why right now? And so just last quickly, question to wrap up after today, after your long day today, what are you going to do to your other passions outside of the mental health space and continue to stay involved with your family and your friends and your personal life? Like, is there any ritual that you have on a daily or weekly basis or anything like that, that helps you reset and stay grounded? Yeah, quite a few. Certainly, I'd probably be remiss if I didn't say my headspace meditation actually has has been really helpful. I usually do a morning walk and just put in my AirPods and and, uh, just being outside five, 10 minutes is incredibly helpful. My time with my daughter, who's just started kindergarten now, is such a great reset and just a great way to constrain all the things and keep them while I can spend the time with her. I think that's such an important part. And then I love to cook. I love to eat. I love to cook. And so food in general, but especially just cooking and, and actually creating something for myself for the family just feels really satisfying and a nice way to, to actually usually cap a day. And so that's a big part. I think I've, I've realized that a lot of these things actually all do feed into my own mental health and are a, an important part of some of the rituals I've developed over the years to, to find that balance. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, all. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Podcast miniseries. This miniseries is part of the Here at Haas podcast. We welcome you to tune into other Here at Haas episodes to hear about different happenings across the Berkeley Haas community. We know that everyone is in a different stage in their own mental health journey, and that's okay and even beautiful. Please be kind to those around you, and we encourage you to care for yourself in the way that feels best for you. We hope you enjoyed our show and welcome you back soon.